Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. It's tax time, and this year, the last day to file is April 17th. But tax season isn't just about getting all your paperwork and receipts in order. It's also when a lot of families look forward to a crucial refund from the IRS. In fact, the government now delivers a significant part of social safety net supports through the tax code. Various policies aim to support parents in important ways. But the structure of American families is changing, and our tax system is not really keeping up. What are the consequences of structuring the tax system this way, and is there a better way of doing it? To talk through these questions and more, I spoke with Elaine Mogg, Senior Research Associate at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. So Elaine, a lot of families have already gone through the annual ritual of filing taxes or in the process of pulling it together in these final days. Can you talk about why tax filing season is especially important for Americans beyond just the paperwork? Sure. So there's really two components of the tax system. One is what you mentioned, the part of the tax system that collects money and actually pays for all the services, or as many as we can from the government. But the second is it's a transfer system as well, in which we actually give money back to people through the tax system. So even people who pay, the vast majority of people, when they file their returns, are going to expect a refund in the mail a couple weeks later. And when you say vast majority, that means? Rich people, middle-income people, low-income people. People like to get refunds. And there's two reasons this happens. The first is for people who owe taxes. They have just a little bit extra held from their paychecks each period. And so by the time, you know, it December rolls around and they resolve these um, payments, they end up having paid too much. So the government refunds that money back to them. But I'm actually more interested in the second group of people. And there's a group of low-income workers, almost all of whom have children, who actually receive net refunds from the tax system. And what I mean by that is they don't owe federal income taxes, but they can receive a substantial amount of money back from the government. And they do it mostly through two main credits. The first is the earned income tax credit. This is a tax credit that subsidizes low and middle income workers. And the second is the child tax credit. And this is a program that gives up to $2,000 for families with children under 17. And so that's a big deal that people rely on those refunds and they're happening at only one time of year. What do people typically do with those refunds? So there's been a little bit of research on what people do with their refunds. And these refunds, just for scale, can be several thousand dollars, like five or six thousand dollars. And so low and middle income families report buying durable goods. So a refrigerator, a car to help them get to work. They might also be making investments in products that they can store throughout the year. And this is kind of a forced savings mechanism for them. They also, um, there's some research that People use the money to pay off sort of accumulated bills. So in December, there's a lot of spending that happens. And all throughout winter, heat bills are maybe piling up, but the heat can't get turned off in most states. But come springtime, that bill is due. And so a large refund coming in February, March, and April can help write a family's finances for the year. And how much do families rely on these refunds that are happening at that one time a year? 
So for a low and middle income family, that tax refund can represent up to 25% of their annual income. So it's a huge amount of money. So that's a dramatic influx of cash at one time of the year. What are the the benefits of that and what are some of the disadvantages from that from a family perspective and a policy perspective? So the good side of using the tax system to subsidize people is that first and foremost, it's politically popular. So it's more popular to give a tax cut than to increase a transfer program. So to the extent we want to get resources in people's pockets, it's politically more palatable to do it through the tax system right now. Another advantage to using the tax system is it doesn't come along with the stigma that might come along with using a transfer program. So there's no social worker sort of looking over your shoulder, second guessing you. Instead, you're filling out the forms in the privacy of your own home. As a result, we see very high participation in tax programs. So we estimate that roughly nine out of 10 people who are eligible for these credits actually receive the credits. So people are able to take advantage of this and are are going to actually receive those benefits and be able to use them. That's right. And it doesn't cost the government that much to give them out administratively because they're also already processing each of these returns anyway. I imagine, though, that this has this might play into some of the income volatility that affects low-income families in, in which wages go up some months, go down other months, um, depends on the type of work that they're engaged in. Uh, is that true? Is that an accurate assumption? That's right. So we've done some research here at the Urban Institute that shows that people's incomes are not stable. They're not receiving a steady paycheck every month. Instead, incomes are bouncing around. And for the majority of low-income working-age people, their incomes are either spiking or dipping by 25% over or under their average in at least one month of the year. So the tax system in some ways exaggerates that because it gives you this large amount of money in another month. Now, the bright side is it's a positive shock, so you're getting extra money in that month. So it's not as difficult to deal with as when you lose a large chunk of money in any given month. But I worry that because we deliver the benefit in one lump sum, what we're really doing is pulling people out of poverty for a couple months of the year and then letting them fall right back into it. And is income volatility increasing? I think about the number of gig type jobs that now exist in the marketplace that weren't there even five years ago, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, and the type of contract uh, economy that is that seems to be growing. Is that leading to additional volatility? It is. So there are a few factors that are highly correlated with having a volatile income. One is you have adults moving in and out of a house. Sometimes they come with income. Sometimes they come needing additional supports. There's also, if you are self-employed, you are much more likely to have your income bouncing around than if you are not self-employed. And the gig economy, of course, is characterized as self-employment income. So as people rely more and more on this income, we can expect their incomes to bounce around more. One of the other changes that I think we're seeing in America's society now is that families and family structure is becoming more complicated or more complex than it used to be. Does the research actually back that up? And what are the implications for taxes for families? So that's definitely true that families are changing more. So what I like to tell people is filing taxes is hard for everyone. 
filing taxes for someone whose family is unstable or changing throughout the year is that much harder. So we built a tax system based on the idea that two adults married, they had children, and they lived their lives together. But that's not how life happens these days. Roughly 40% of all children are born outside of marriage each year. And that's a problem for the tax system to the extent that it means there are likely people in two separate tax units that care for this child. And when you say tax unit, you mean family. Is that right? (laughs) Right. So consider, for example, a couple that chooses to live together without marrying and they may or may not have children, that couple, though they form one unit, is actually two tax units. And the problem arises when they have kids and figuring out which tax return is that child supposed to go on, which one's more advantageous, and have we built the system we want. And there's another common scenario that comes up with these complex households, which is a divorced couple. So you have children who are living half of their lives with one parent and half of their lives with another, and the tax system is not flexible and doesn't provide half of the child benefits to one parent and half to the other. Instead, we have a winner-take-all system. So one parent ultimately gets benefits from having that child, and the other parent gets almost nothing. There's also another complicated situation for the tax system, and that's a multi-generational household. And these are becoming more and more common. And what I mean by that is there's a grandmother, a mother, and a child who all live together. And it may be that that grandmother provides support to the child and the mother provides support to the child. But that's another situation where the tax system treats them as two distinct units, and only one of them can receive benefits for that child. And you've described situations where people are racing to file their taxes to be able to claim children or claim dependents on those tax forms. That's right. So in the worst case scenario, what we have is parents who can't agree between themselves who should get the claim the credit. And we've observed in some cases, one parent sort of files the return quite quickly, and they're more likely to get the tax refund. And then when the second parent files, the IRS can easily tell that these children have already been claimed. And so now a second return is held up and the IRS has to figure out who should have actually received that benefit. This has actually gotten better in recent years because as of last year, the IRS was forbidden from sending out refunds before a certain date. And this allowed more returns to come in and the IRS to have more information before they actually start sending money out the door. Is there anything else that you'd recommend that they do, either simple fixes or complicated policy shifts to address some of these familial complexities? So to really address the issue, I think the IRS and the government needs to figure out how can we divide benefits across multiple households. So the taxpayer advocate has suggested um, there's a special filing status called head of household. And this filing status is basically for a single parent. And so it gives that person a little bit lower tax rate on some income and a little bit higher amount of income that can be exempted. And right now, only one person can claim that. But Why shouldn't both parents be able to claim that? Because in these cases of divorce where kids are moving between homes, it probably is true that both parents are maintaining an extra bedroom for that child, and both parents have fixed costs associated with that child. So one solution would be to allow every parent of the child to claim the special status. The other thing that the IRS can consider is allowing people to split benefits. So instead of the child tax credit only going to one parent, if parents 
could agree, you might say, well, each parent is entitled to $1,000 of the child tax credit rather than one parent getting the full $2,000. And given the trend lines and the demographics in the country, this challenge isn't going away anytime soon. This is this is the new quote unquote, modern family. That's right. We've seen over the past 50 years, divorce rates are increasing, as is the rate of people choosing to live together without being married. And there's no nothing to suggest that this is going to change. So last December, Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which dramatically changed the tax code in a lot of ways. Did that bill do anything to help out families when we think about tax seasons in the future? So the major thing for low and middle income families that happened in the tax bill was a change to the child tax credit. So rather than being $1,000 per child under 17, it increased to $2,000 per child under 17. And it also created a credit for children who don't qualify for that $2,000. And these are generally older children or children who are here legally but don't have SSNs. And they qualify for a $500 credit. The other thing it did was eliminate the personal exemption, and the personal exemption um, was just a provision in the tax code that allowed people to exempt about $4,000 of their income each year for each person in the household. So those benefits were sort of combined into one child tax credit. It didn't address any of the issues that we've been talking about, though. It did not make it so that more than one parent could claim the credit. It did not make it so that a cohabiting couple was treated as one unit instead of two tax units. So it didn't really change the act of filing for anyone. And how many people receive the child tax credit? It's a significant number. So the child tax credit um, next year will deliver about $128 billion of benefits to around 65 million families. And what percent of families that have kids will receive some form of benefit? Roughly 90% of families with children will receive a benefit from the new child tax credit. And that's because it encompasses both those children under 17, like it always has, but also those 18 and 19-year-old students that haven't always been included. So... That's uh, more money for families or with with kids of and and expanding the age range of kids who actually will receive some of that funding. Do you think it went far enough? Legislators missed the boat in a couple ways. The first thing, they um, didn't look at a growing body of evidence that suggests that subsidizing very young children provides an extra bang for your buck. And so I would say there's still room to improve the credit for families with young children. It also only made a portion of that $2,000 refundable. So whereas a middle-income family gets $2,000 per child under 17, a low-income family's benefit maxes out at $1,400 per child. So that's another disparity that could be fixed. Kind of important long-term, though, is that the child tax credit is a benefit we traditionally do not index for inflation. And so that means every year it's worth just a little bit less in terms of buying power. And that's different from the personal exemption, which it sort of replaced, because that personal exemption used to grow over time. So in effect, the value of the of those tax credits will decrease over time in comparison to what they might have gotten if the tax code had stayed the same. That's right, um, because people would have still been getting that personal exemption, which was growing over time, and getting the child tax credit, which was fixed. And now they're only going to get this fixed benefit, and it will only change as um, legislators decide to change it. And you mentioned that you would recommend a tax credit that really focused on families with young children. What do you see as the value of zeroing in on those families for additional support? 
So in a world with constrained resources, I think it's important to think about where's the best value for each dollar we spend. And there's a substantial amount of research out there that shows when we subsidize families with very young children, we see a lifetime of benefits. We see this in better health outcomes. We see it in better education outcomes. And we see it that children who have access to extra resources in the beginning are less likely to be in poverty later on. And under the tax law, were there any changes made to the earned income tax credit? So in some ways, the EITC is another place that was a missed opportunity. There's been a lot of call for increasing the part of the EITC that goes to families without children, and that was left virtually unchanged, as was the entire credit. The only change that really happened was, just like the rest of the tax system, it's going to be indexed to a new measure of inflation, and that new measure is more conservative than the old one. And what that means is that the credit's going to grow a little bit more slowly over time. So it's sort of another backdoor way that benefits were restricted in the future. Elaine, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's been great. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you should know. One, the tax system aims to support families in some ways, but can also exacerbate the income volatility that many families face by offering only one-time refund payments during tax season. Two, the current tax system isn't built to accommodate the tremendous diversity of modern family structures. This is especially important as families figure out how they will take advantage of child-related tax credits and benefits. And three, Although the recent Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will help families by expanding the child tax credit to $2,000, it's not indexed for inflation. That means that every year it will be worth a little bit less in terms of buying power. So that's our show. Thanks again to Elaine Mogg. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our editor, Matt Johnson, our producer, Yafon Powers, and to Vicki Gann for all her help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.